Listener discretion is advised. A very UFO-looking craft just washes ashore, and this woman gets out of it who didn't look like people of that time and place. Uh, I I believe she was described as having red hair, and she was holding a box that she was protecting very closely and not letting anyone near it. Uh, they drew pictures of this thing, and it, it has these strange markings on it. It's it's very disc-shaped. It's um, They describe it as a hollow boat. And with all of these past encounters, all they have to describe these things are the references that they have at that time. I cannot wait for you to hear the rest of that encounter. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Scary Time the podcast that helps you find new, emerging, and undiscovered scary and paranormal podcasts. I'm Greg, the host and curator of Scary Time. Today's featured episode is from Mysterious Radio. On Mysterious Radio, you'll enjoy in-depth interviews surrounding terrifying hauntings, strange UFO phenomena, sinister secret societies, chilling disappearances, and much more. If you like today's episode, please click the link in the episode description to subscribe. All right, we're going to get this show started after a quick word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Begin. today. I am your host K-Town and you're listening to Mysterious Radio. Could UFOs and aliens simply be us but from the future? My special guest is Dr. Michael P. Masters and he's here to discuss his book called Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomena. Dr. Masters provocative new book cautiously examines the premise that extraterrestrials may instead be our distant human descendants using the anthropological tool of time travel to visit and study us in their own hominin evolutionary past. And you can get Dr. Master's book, Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach 
to the UFO phenomena right now on Amazon in Kindle, audiobook, and paperback. And now here's my special guest, Dr. Michael P. Masters. My name is Dr. Michael Masters. I'm a biological anthropologist. I teach at Montana Tech in Butte, Montana. And I became really interested in the UFO phenomenon at a pretty young age. I was eight years old, and I overheard my father talking about a UFO encounter that he had had. And he described it as a pretty conventional encounter with a light in the sky that moved erratically. Uh, but he got Whitley Strieber's book, Communion. And I remember glancing up at it on living room living room shelf and having this this image pop in my head of uh, a chimpanzee-like form, a modern human form, and then this quintessential alien form. And just the similarity among them was striking to me, and I wondered if there could be a connection. So I um, went into school as a physics and astronomy major and then switched to anthropology as an undergraduate and uh, really been pursuing this question ever since and wondering whether or not these uh, these aliens, as they're oftentimes called, these UFOs that are seen in association with them, could simply be us from the future, coming back in time to study their own hominin evolutionary past in the same way that I would as a modern biological anthropologist if I had access to time travel technology. Let's talk a little bit about your father's um, sighting, if you remember that, and then we're going to go on and talk about you. But do you mind staying there for a second? Sure, absolutely. Okay. So, so, yeah, tell me what he said, what he saw, or what ex- what he experienced. Well, my memory of what my father saw is a, a little bit fuzzy, obviously, because I was only eight. But I went back and interviewed him again in college. Uh, I sort of had another period in time where I was, my, my interest in this was peaked again. And um, he so he described it as a, a ball of light that didn't really radiate any light outward from it. If you look at a, a, a street lamp in the distance or the, the lights of an oncoming car in the distance, they radiate these beams of light outward, but this just glowed. And it was sitting above the horizon in Amish country in rural Ohio, uh, northeast Ohio. And he happened to have somebody along with him. He rarely worked uh, with other people, but there was someone riding along with him. It was a late night call. So this bright light in Amish country where there's really no lights to speak of really stood out. And they stopped the truck at the crest of this hill, and this light suddenly shot toward the truck stopped a, a, a hundred meters away or so, just sat there for a little bit, shot back across the horizon to where it was previously, hovered there for a little bit, and then at incredible speed went up into the sky and disappeared from sight. So really, it's it's quite conventional. It's very similar to what a lot of people describe seeing, but uh, clearly resonated with him and uh, was, as it turns out, a, a key component of my own fascination with this subject. Wow. Okay. So that's the only one he's ever had in his life? He only had that one. It is. Yeah, it's the only one he's ever seen. I've I've never seen a UFO, so I'm envious of those who who have. Um but it, who knows, maybe someday. Yeah. Maybe someday, you know, if you look up, I'm sure you'll see something. You think that some of these craft could be 
human beings coming back from the past. This is actually not the first time I've heard that, but how do you think, no, let me, let me go here. How much involvement do you think the government has in these craft? Do they have them too? Or do you think they're all human beings from the, from the future? Well, yeah, I would agree that the idea has been around for a while. Um, George Knapp told me one time, sort of a, a living legend in the UFO community, that um, you know he's heard this idea for decades, but this is the first time someone with an academic background has brought a, a multidisciplinary approach. And um, yeah, part of that involves investigating different case studies and and something I'm working on for a new book is looking at different encounters other people have had and and to answer your question it it would seem from from these that there is some knowledge on the part of certain government entities certain branches uh the Air Force Office of Special Investigations for instance comes up over and over again in cases where people have been interrogated uh, about what they've seen, especially people in the U.S. military, um, that the, that specific branch of the military tends to, to come up time and time again. So I, I don't think it's necessarily something that's widely known about. I'm sure it's top secret, and it makes sense why it would be if they're protecting secrets. If we have access to intellectual property that gives us uh, a leg up over our rivals. We've had an arms race with every other human group really since the beginning of stone tools and through the Copper Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, Gunpowder Age, Nuclear Age. So you can certainly understand why they would protect that and uh, keep it secret. And I, I don't claim to have any special knowledge of that, but I, I have read a number of cases that would seem to suggest that there is some knowledge, at least uh, among certain members of the military. Got you. And have you read the the book called The Day After Roswell? With I've Carl read it. Corso. Yeah, I've read in it, as a friend of mine used to say. Uh, a good friend of mine is he's he's nine. He was ninety four. He died. Uh, oh God, I guess it was five or six years ago. But I'd ask him about books all the time. He said, "I read in it," and I I'm, I have it on my shelf. I'm looking at it right now. Um, and I've used it a lot for for research, but researching specific things. So uh, not cover to cover, but I am familiar with the work. Okay. I was asking because I could have swore there's something in there where he talks about um, the government getting a hold of some of these aircraft and they're back engineering them and they actually travel to the future, then go back and forth into the future. And they were using them to try to divert some type of imminent danger to the planet trying to warn us of some things i'm not sure but i'm i think that's in there have you heard yeah, that that, do, that does sound familiar in fact it's it's funny you mentioned that because the reason i got this book is i came across a passage that cited a i think it was a general um around that time who who said these were time machines who came out and blatantly said that um again an indication of how long this idea has been around it possibly even dates back to before 1947 to be honest um but but yeah if if we did have that technology given to us uh, whether it's intentional or unintentional, I would tend to think it, it was an unintentional crash. Otherwise, they would just sit down and say, here's this ship. It works great. Uh, try not to get any dings or dents in it, if you could, as you're traveling through time and space. But it, it seems like it was more of an accidental thing. And if we did, if we were gifted this technology, 
why wouldn't we try to break it apart and understand it? And in my mind, the first thing that would happen is to figure out the propulsion system, this sort of anti-gravity, likely electromagnetic propulsion system. But then beyond that, if we did recognize that it has the ability to warp space and time, our knowledge of physics in 1947, even today, isn't where it needs to be to really fully comprehend that, at least in the way that we know in modern physics. So they they may have been working on that. They may still be working on that. Um, but I think it'll be some time before we have our own device. However, with that said, in the presence of a time machine, you really can't separate the past, the present, and the future. They all become one. At whatever point members of our future can reach the past, however far back they can go, that all becomes one big holistic entity. So it's possible that they could have picked people up from that time too and said, this is what this did. Sorry, we wrecked it into your desert in 1947, but this is a time machine. Hey, let's go check out the future. Let's try to yeah, avoid some catastrophes and things. And what's interesting is I've heard that from other sources too. Uh, more recently, I just had to open a Proton Mail account because someone wanted to tell me about this thing that they considered to be uh, sort of, I, I guess, not necessarily secret, but came from a source that they were trying to protect. And, and it, it, they said that same thing, uh, that, that idea that there's uh, this time travel happening and it's to avoid some sort of uh, catastrophe, some cataclysm, I think is the exact word they used. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And another one that comes to mind for me, I had um, Alfred Labermont Weber on the show and he blatantly says, you know, back in the 60s or 70s, he was in a meeting somewhere and um, a, a guy came out and had his book and said that he was a time traveler and wanted mm. to speak to him about something. I mean, he was dead serious about it, you know. Um, yeah. And people, I want them to look that up too. I mean, he was a fascinating guest, really. Um, but yeah, they feel like it's, you know, this truly happening. What about, have you looked at the crop circle phenomena at all? I mean, for some reason, some of those symbols, some of those things that are popping up in crop circles, people are thinking that they are warnings or something like that from the future. Have you looked at that at all? Um, it's, it's funny you mentioned that too, because just recently I sat down to have a beer, uh, with a fellow named Richard O'Connor who lives not too far away from me in Helena, Montana. And he just published a book about, uh, that very thing about crop circles, about nuclear warning of nuclear Holocaust, the dangers of nuclear weapons, nuclear energy. And he he laid out a case in his book. I, I haven't had the chance to read it yet. I actually just got it recently. But he was explaining to me an instance where there were a number of crop circle, crop circles, crop circles that uh, that showed up, and shortly after that were some serious malfunctions that happened at a nearby power plant and and some other seemingly coincidental things like that. And he he reached out to me because he thinks that. Uh, this time travel explanation is an important part of the equation. Um, he talks about in his book, he, he references my work uh, quite a number of times in his book. Um, but, but yeah, there's definitely a case to be made there that if these are happening, obviously some of them are hoaxes. Uh, many have been proven to be hoaxes. But the ones that are a little more intricate that just show up in a very short period of time and that would take days to do, um, and then especially when they correlate with something like that, I, I think it's definitely worthy of further investigation. 
I totally agree. And, you know, the whole subject is a minefield. I mean, there's no way one person can know all the answers. So it's good to hear you say that this guy is referencing, you know, your work and you're looking at other people's work, you know, and you don't always get that. A lot of people are kind of, um, they have a narrow focus and they don't want to give credence to anybody else's research. It's not possible. I mean, you have to allow other people to do their own thing. And then you kind of compare notes and such and try to figure this out for the rest of us. Yeah. And I say all the time that I, I don't claim to have all of the answers by any means. All I'm trying to do is put forth an idea or a new way of approaching this old idea that brings together modern knowledge from a number of different fields, primarily anthropology, astronomy, physics, and my main field of anthropology. But yeah, we can't work in isolation. We can't work in a bubble. We have to be collaborative because with with a phenomenon this complex and mysterious, we're never going to get the answers unless we're looking across different fields or looking at other people's work. And we're working together to try to understand this the best we can because yeah, nobody has the answers. And, and I think the only way to get them is, is through collaboration, not competition. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to look at your book here and okay. So maybe I'm, I hope I say this right. The question of, is it extra tempestrial encounters in human yeah. history? Did I say that right? Yeah, absolutely. Spot on. Whoa. Yeah, all I okay, did is great. take out the, the Latin root terre for uh-huh. earth, so extra terre outside of earth, uh, and replaced it with the Latin root for time. Just stuck tom in awesome. there, so it's extra tempestrial, just to, to keep the same terminology, but to give it, uh, obviously, a temporal designation to say outside of time as opposed to outside of space. Okay, so that's awesome. Okay, so let's look at some of that in, in your... Um, in this particular uh, chapter of your book. Okay, so you do talk about, hold on a second. Okay, so you talk about numerous oral and written accounts of extraordinary events, you know, that originated from close encounters um, from IFOs. So can you tell us like some of the stuff, I mean, you mentioned J. Alec, J. Allen, Allen Hynek. I need to say that again. You mentioned J. Allen Hynek as well, who I find very fascinating. Tell mm. me like some of the events that you've, you know, maybe looked at closer or really dug into that really kind of amazed you as far as like um, reports of sightings. Oh, there's so many reports. Um, it's it's hard to know where to start with that one. I I was fortunate. I started to talk about this book before it was actually published, and in an interview I was doing, someone mentioned Jim Penniston, who I'd never heard of, which is sort of embarrassing, I guess, uh, having written a book about time traveling aliens over the course of the seven years prior. Um, but that one is sort of a classic case, the Rendlesham Forest, um, Jim Penniston claims to have touched one of these craft, received binary code. For your listeners who might not be familiar with this, when they deciphered that binary code, it gave a number of GPS coordinates and said that these were essentially time travelers from, I think, the year 8100, which could be 6,100 years in the future or uh, a straight up 8100 years, depending on how you interpret that with AD and BC or and, and whatnot. Um, so that one is obviously interesting. I was I was really glad I I was notified about that because it dovetailed nicely with an argument I had already been making about why 
they seemingly are always focused on gametes, extracting sperm, egg, and in many reports, developing fetuses from women. Uh, but why this constant sampling of these sex cells? What, what does this do for them? What's the purpose behind that? And I was making the argument that based on past trends that we're moving toward genetic homogenization, we used to have all of these different populations, interbreeding uh, groups of humans that eventually came together, which was springboarded along by uh, European colonialism and imperialism and all these other things, just technology in general, uh, airplanes and, and ships that can move us around faster and faster. So now we have one interbreeding population here on Earth, which could create a number of problems related to essentially incest and increase in homozygous recessive genes specifically. And with those come a number of detrimental traits. So I made the argument in the book, which is also something that Jim Pennison claims to have received in this binary code, that they're coming back to solve problems associated with their reproduction. They're having difficulties with reproduction in the future. And if, if you're looking for new gene variants, the best place to get those would be in the past with novel genes, uh, haplogroups, haplotypes that didn't make it into the future, where you can find these genetic variants to help diversify your gene pool, so to speak. But there's other trends too, uh, such as a decrease in sperm count in males over the last 40 years, more difficulties with men and women getting pregnant and a lot of in, uh, different in vitro fertilization and other methods that we're introducing. So I, I think that one stands out as a as a case that that I didn't know about. I wrote about similar things, and then finding that right before I published the book kind of brought these the same argument, but from very different places together. And I think sort of made a a better case for it coming from two vastly different sources, but sort of saying the same types of things. This is this is so fascinating. Um, okay, so now I. You know, I kind of lost my place there. And I'm going to go back to what you just said. But um, there there was a, um, a reference made in your book, and it was about an encounter that happened in Japan called The Legend of the Hollow Boat. Can you tell us about that? And how did you find that? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it's The Legend of the Hollow Boat. The Itsuro Bune, I think, is what that's called. Um, yeah, it's, so it's one of the first I'm mass sightings really in, in history. It's exactly. an instance yeah. Yeah, where come down from the sky, it would have uh, been referenced to something different had it been spinning. But even then they, they wouldn't have had the same words that, that we do. A lot of people claim that, that Ezekiel's account in the Bible, that Ezekiel saw this craft, the way he describes it as a wheel within a wheel and an am amber glowing and all of these things that were the best way he could describe it at that time. But as time goes on and we get closer to the present, we have a better understanding of metal and anti-gravity and, and, and lights and rotation and all of these things that we can use now, which still probably seem primitive to them if they are coming from a distant point in our future or even from a distant planet, but they're farther ahead than us. So yeah, this this uh, legend of the hollow boat, the Itsuro Bune, is certainly one of these cases that I think is is worthy of attention because it's, it's a mass sighting based on J. Allen Hynek's uh, reliability scale. More people saw it, so it's more reliable in that sense. It still has a high strangeness rating because it's a very strange encounter, especially because this woman 
uh, wasn't dressed like the people of, of 1800s Japan. She didn't look like them. The craft was very different. They couldn't describe it other than being a hollow boat. Uh, so yeah, but I think what, that, what did she look like exactly? Did they have like a reference to her eyes, a hair, skin color, anything like that? There, I couldn't find anything um, too detailed about her physical characteristics other than that she was human and that she had a pale face, reddish hair, um, which are – the the reddish hair, it, it does come up in some cases, uh, especially with – the 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 more what what I refer to is is more proximate humans ones that aren't the grays so to speak that aren't bald with big eyes and small faces and short pedomorphic characteristics childlike characteristics but they still do have hair um, and in some cases they are described as red or blonde but the the pale face the red hair both of those characteristics are definitely outside of what's conventional for that region and time. Wow, I was impressed when I saw it. I hadn't heard that ever, ever, ever. So let's talk about your theories as far as like how these or us are traveling, how these future human beings are, are traveling. Are they? Do you believe they're traveling between planets? Is that what you're theorizing that, that they're doing? I mean, is the Earth still there? The reason why I'm asking is because, you know, right now, I mean, we're living in this day and time and we hear about all the destruction that's happening to our planet now. Um, and it seems like it's getting worse. So I'm wondering if it's even still there. So what are you thinking about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and a lot of people see this as a hopeful thing, to be honest, because if, if they are us from the future, there's a very good chance that they still live on this planet, um, that this is still their home, that we haven't had to colonize space or colonize other planets. But we're just, we're traveling back in time here on the same planet that we both call home and we call home throughout the ages. So uh, even even regardless of where we might be living, the fact that there are humans in the future, because looking at all of the the potential things that could go wrong with the ability to wipe out humanity with nuclear weapons and global warming and all of these other things, it indicates that we are still here. We persevere into the future. And and that gives a lot of hope. I've had a, a number of people tell me too, that they used to be afraid of alien invasions. And after reading this book that went out the window, they were like, why would our descendants who rely on us existing for their own existence ever hurt us in any way. So I, I think it does give us some sense of hope, at least in the the context of humanity persevering. But but unfortunately there's no way to know if we will live underground, if we live in space on other planets. Um, but I, I'm hopeful there there there's always these periods and there have been throughout the past where it's, it's doom and gloom. We, we think that there's no way out of these issues, there's no way out of these problems, but we find a way. And I think as we continue to evolve our technology, which has helped us out, it's one of the only things that gets us out of these problems, but also evolve our empathy and our sense of compassion for the other. And we don't divide ourselves. We don't construct the other any longer, but we see our shared humanity. I, I think if we continue to move forward as a species with our collective consciousness and evolve our understanding of what it means to be human, I think we could reach a point where a lot of these things just sort of fade away and we, we reach a point where we have an advanced society with advanced technology. What 
what you always see in these utopian films, I guess, that, and ironically, many of which take place now or in the, the near future, but obviously that hasn't come to pass yet. Okay, so you said a lot of nice, great things there that I would love nothing more than to be true. But are you, um, are you at all concerned about, uh, we're going to say, quote, p- the powers that be or some entity somewhere, group of people bent on uh, the destruction of human beings and the planet? I mean, is that something you focused on or looked at? Sure. I mean, I, th- I think that's always in the back of our minds. As as a child of the 80s and 90s, we we always had to think about nuclear war. And I, I remember it coming up quite a lot in school and church as a kid. Um, but, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think at least in the context of this phenomenon, if if they also inhabit this same earth, and they clearly want us to take care of the earth, you hear this all the time in all of these different accounts, especially with children, such as the aerial school encounter in Zimbabwe, take care of the earth, they communicate it telepathically, they communi- to, communicate it to us verbally, vocally. So it, it would seem that we do share the same planet. And the fact that they've shut down the missiles at the Malmstrom Air Force Base and, and other uh, nuclear silos have experienced similar things suggests to me that if we were to launch a nuclear attack and that would have an impact on them if they also live on this planet they don't want to live with the the radiation that would last for hundreds and hundreds of years so i almost see those encounters where they take over the controls at malmstrom and other places as a way of testing whether or not they could shut us down they probably see us as a bunch of two-year-olds playing with knives and guns just not fully capable of understanding what would happen if we did this or what impact it would have. Um, Really just seemingly childish in their eyes, the way that we divide ourselves and create all of these manufactured conflicts, oftentimes for economic gain. So it's very possible that this is done to test whether or not they could stop that if they needed to. And um, obviously, I, I have no way of knowing that. But because there is such a connection between the UFO phenomenon and our nuclear weapons, it would seem to suggest that they do care, that they, as stakeholders in the future of this planet, would try to ensure that we don't destroy it for us and them. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Also, there's another uh, section in your book where you talk about the concept of travel, black holes, time warps, things like that. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. Maybe not, but um wormholes things like that can you tell us like um and say the planet is gone god forbid but and the, but the human race has made it somewhere close by you know they found or we found a planet that was inhabitable but we want to go back in time and somehow um save the planet or whatnot i mean do you think we've i mean are you looking at the possibility of being able to use wormholes that we've gained that knowledge in the future and actually using it yeah i mean it's it's kind of tricky because it really comes down to how you interpret time and space and and the most conventionally understood way of of thinking of it is in the context of block time or landscape time where essentially every moment from the very beginning of the Big Bang to the end of all matter in this universe exists as one massive block of four-dimensional space-time. And in that context, if you're moving in and out of different periods of it, there's not really a way to change anything in the past in the way that we typically think of it or in the way these paradoxes are oftentimes portrayed in, in TV and film. And, and that's another thing that, coming back to something we spoke about earlier with regard to this uh, avoidance of a cataclysm or some type of catastrophe, in block time, that wouldn't be possible. And the main reason for that is because when you return to your own time after visiting the past, everything's still the same. You can't change the past in block time because anything you did in that past, any change you felt like you made has already manifested itself before you ever left from the future to do it. So you're just going back and essentially doing the same thing you had always done in that moment and any effect of that that flutters out from that moment in time and this sort of butterfly effect as we like to think of it has already fluttered prior to you ever leaving to go do it in the first place. So there's self-consistency that's maintained in the system. So uh, personally, I don't think that we could ever change anything we might be able to instill ideas that have an effect if we have always done that, uh, such as the take care of the earth mantra or, uh, you know, take care of each other, which is more rare, but it's still said from time to time. It's mostly just take care of the earth, take care of the earth. But at least within the context of block time, there would be no way to, to change anything or avoid anything as much as we might want to do it. So I thought I heard something about 
you know, no matter what we did, if, even if we could travel back in time, there's no way that we would ever change future events. So that's what you're, I mean, that's what you're saying. Only under that block time model. Yeah, we also have the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And within this model, which I didn't talk about much in this particular book, because again, the most conventionally understood uh, idea is this block time, this block universe, uh, as I just described. But we do have the multiverse too, and the many worlds interpretation. In this particular instance, anytime you visit the past, it creates this decoherence. So you have different timelines form, essentially. In that context, you could go back and change something. You could create a new timeline where in the future, there was a different reality. There was a different existence that was the result of you modifying something in the past. That old timeline still exists, your original timeline, your home timeline. But then there's this other one. There's this new timeline where you can actually change things and make different uh, events transpire as a result of that intervention. So um, even though it's uh, Everett popularized it, I believe, back in the 60s, it has a, a strong following. It, it's not something that people think is maybe even provable or not something that we could ever even test because it would involve um, moving across the dimensions, essentially. And um, we only know of these three dimensions of space, one dimension of time. So eventually in the future, we may have an answer to that. It is a possibility. I think it's worthy of mention. Uh, but again, for this particular book, I mostly focused on the block universe and this uh, Novikov self-consistency principle, as it's known. Okay. So speaking of time, I want to, to give you a moment to give you a moment to talk about how other civilizations in the past um, perceived you know, the concept of time. Can you tell us about that? Oh, it's really interesting. That's one of the things that I found extremely fascinating in researching and writing this book is there's a lot of variation in how different societies perceive it and understand it and talk about it or not talk about it. There's some uh, societies where there's really no mention of the future. Some don't even have a word for the future. They essentially see themselves walking backward through time, where they can see what's happening around them now in the present. They can see what already transpired because they're looking back at it, but they don't even bother talking about what could be behind them as they slowly walk backward through time. It never even worked its way into their lexicon, their vocabulary, which I find to be fascinating because we're, in Western society, almost obsessed with it. Time is one of the most used words in the English language even though we have very little understanding of what it is. It's it's this really anomalous aspect of our existence where we, we take this thing that can't be quantized, it can't be broken down into smaller and smaller units. It's, it's something that's not fundamental. It's emergent. It grows out of some other thing that we don't even yet understand, but it dictates so much of what we do. So, yeah, really looking at the cross-cultural concept of time, the way that our obsession with the future, our anxieties that grow out of it, and the way that we always have to try to understand what's coming next or what could happen or what if this did happen. And it really gives us a lot of health issues too. There's been a number of studies that looked at the effect on people's health and in relation to the way they perceive time and talk about time. So yeah, I think that's one of the main things we do as anthropologists is take a cross-cultural 
and evolutionary approach. We look at time and we look at variation across space. And uh, with something as complex as time and something that that even in the most advanced societies, they don't yet understand it. It gives us a lot of variation in the way we talk about it and the way we conceptualize it. And one other um, thing I want to talk about as far as time is concerned is you did look at the Hopi civilization from reading, going back through your book just now. I, I find they are so fascinating and they were clearly to me so intelligent and so tuned in to our natural world and things going on, even mm-hmm. things that we couldn't visibly see. So can you tell me like what else did you, did you find out anything else fascinating about the Hopi as far as like extraterrestrial encounters or anything like that, or any UFO sightings that they may have referenced from their past? Uh, I haven't as of yet, but that's actually one of the next big projects is to do just that, is to go around and look at these different societies who practice intentional cranial modification or who who made cave paintings and carvings and things that really seem to consistently show uh, these same types of beings, the, the big heads, the big eyes, the small faces. And if they're, if they're, if we're seeing these things now and they can travel backward through time, it may be the exact same individuals that we see now that they see in the past or that they saw in the past going back as, as far as they can possibly travel. And I imagine the Hopi are one of many individual Native American groups that have had encounters like this. It seems like um, there's, there's a book called Legends of the Star People, I believe it's known as, and many different groups have had these experiences, have had abductions, on not just here in the Americas, but throughout Africa and, and East Asia and all of these other places. And yeah, I, I would love to look in that more into that more. And that's uh, one of the the next big things. The Hopi under themselves are fascinating too, because they're one of few societies that were as close to matriarchal uh, as you can get, where, where women had so much say in uh, controlling of property and, and passing down the material wealth of the family and all of these things that uh, throughout history have, have been do- dominated by men in a patriarchal context. But they 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 had a lot of interesting cultural traits, and and I'm sure if you dug deep, uh, as with most Native Americans and many non-Western groups, you would find a lot of uh, evidence of potential encounters as well. All right, um, ancient megalithic sites, ancient sites um, that were thought to be important to to ancient civilizations that could still hold some importance to these human beings from the future. If, you know, we're, we're seeing craft around them and, and such, I mean, do you know of any where that's occurring? Yeah, there's, there's been a number of, um, of, of places where I, I deviate from this idea that aliens built any of these things or even influenced them, really. It's, it's sort of, um, it's, uh, it's hard because there's this this line that was drawn in the sand where we as anthropologists and archaeologists aren't supposed to even be talking about this stuff. It's very taboo. I mean, it's taboo to talk about UFOs in general, and I've gotten over that, obviously, or I wouldn't have written the book. But um, it, there's there's unfortunately been a bastardization of sorts of 
these megalithic structures, uh, Easter Island, Machu Picchu, Stonehenge, and others, where you have these groups saying, well, they must have been built by aliens because the people of that time weren't able to do that. And it's also kind of racist in a way because they don't really say that about the ancient Greeks or these other groups that lived around that same time. So um, I, I don't necessarily think that there is um, a strong tie between these structures and the UFO phenomenon per se. But with that said, there are a lot of times in, in a modern context, UFOs seen in and around them. And to me, that indicates that these ancient sites uh, maybe don't persist in the future. And it's uh, an aspect of time tourism, where they're coming back through the ages to see these things when they still existed. Or major which events. Sites, like, which, which sites are you referring to? Um, throughout the Teotihuacan Valley of Mexico is, is a good example. There's a lot of UFO encounters and UFOs seen in and around Mexico City and, and these other places. Um, it's very possible that they were visiting them as they were being made, too. Uh, there's stone carvings, there's, there's paintings and, and things that would seem to indicate that they, like us, had contact with these future humans, these extratempestrials. But th throughout the ages, it's not just the places, but the events. Like the Foo Fighters during World War II, the fact that we see this uptick in these sightings uh, indicates to me that this is likely some sort of research mission, but also possibly in the same way that there's a lot of money to be made from taking people into space. And we see the space race happening now with uh, all of these different Virgin Atlantic and, and SpaceX and, and Jeff Bezos's company, forget the name of it at the moment. They just went up in space with William Shatner, I think last week for God's sake. So if there is this desire to take people into space and look at the earth, I, I can only imagine how strong the desire must be to take people through time and to see their favorite site when it was being built or in all of these different periods throughout the past. So it, it, I don't know. I, I consider that an aspect of this film. I think the abduction part is very scientific. It's exactly what I would do as a biological anthropologist if I could go back in time and study our ancestors and our hominid ancestors in the deep past especially. But when we're talking about these megalithic structures or these major events and there's UFOs involved – then to me that that's more indicative of a potential time tourism type thing. And and potentially, we're getting kind of long-winded here, I'll wrap it up, but potentially that's what helps drive this technology, that it's not governments making time travel machines, but it's the private sector. In the same way that they're taking people up to space now, they could be a big part of uh, moving that technology and the material sciences and the physics that's necessary to do this uh, bringing all that together and making the first time machine. That's interesting. Everything you said was very interesting. I'm very interested in your thoughts about how some of these sites were built. Um, because what they're basically looking at is like the, the accuracy in which some of these blocks are placed. Um, and the fact that they're not recovering any tools and that they can't do it today. So how do you think? you know, these sites were put together. I mean, do you have any theories or thoughts on it? I mean, was it human beings using a lot of elbow grease or what's your thoughts on it? Well, there's there's a lot of things to unpack there. And, and unfortunately, we don't always do the best job as anthropologists with communicating these things 
to the public. We write a lot of really esoteric papers and we kind of talk to each other about things. I'm, I'm guilty of this as well. Uh, I was just cited by these, um, these medical researchers in China the other day, a paper I published. I, I barely understood what the hell they were saying, <laughs> even though they were citing my research. So it's a very esoteric thing that we do and we have to look past that. But But when you start to break it down and look at what they could have done at these times, the tools, many of which they just don't preserve. They were using wood as handles for a lot of things, and, and that just doesn't preserve as long as stone does. Um, there's also, we have to consider too, that with a large workforce, and in many of these cases, at least post-agricultural, they were slaves. They had large slave uh, populations that were being forced to do this labor for long hours. And we have to understand that that what we see is a snapshot in time of something that took hundreds or potentially thousands of years to make. And if you have hundreds or thousands of people working on it, you can lift heavy objects. You can make a massive block to put in this pyramid in a relatively short period of time. Um, so I think the numbers are important. And it's also to keep in mind that they didn't, they didn't have the Kardashians. They didn't have the ability to just sit down and play video games all day. What else was there to do? They were solving problems. They were thinking about engineering. They were thinking about the best ways to keep earthquakes from destroying their sacred monuments in, in Central America and Mesoamerica. And, and they did a fantastic job. Many of these structures still exist and the blocks fit tightly together because they took the time to make them that way. So uh, the people of those times could absolutely build the things they were building. Uh, I don't think we should sell them short, but we do have to kind of step back and recognize that with a large enough workforce over a long enough period of time, you can certainly understand how they could do these things. All right. So um, I'm going to give you an opportunity now to tell my listeners about any other projects that you may be working on. Well, I think I mentioned briefly at the beginning of the show um, a new book, which I just got back from my beta readers this week, actually. So I'm starting to go through what will be one of the last rounds of edits. And um, something I touched on is how it's a different approach. This first book really focused on human evolution and these long-term changes in our evolutionary anatomy, where if they continue into the future, we're likely to look very similar to what's so commonly described in these close encounters and these abduction reports. And we're likely to have technology that's very much in line with the evolution of our current technology. So it, it mostly focuses on that long-term uh, evolutionary aspect of our biology and culture with very little mention of these case studies, the, the cases, the things that people report, the well-known and the lesser known. So this next book focuses more on those um, and kind of ties it into this extratempestrial model, but also looks at how these fit with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, the interdimensional hypothesis, the ultra-terrestrial idea, and many other interpretations of this phenomenon. So it isn't just rooted in this time travel model, but it also looks at what works, what doesn't. Um, and uh, actually, something I haven't mentioned anywhere else, um, I, I've got a TV show in the works. We're, we're trying to um, really kind of look at all of these different cases, culturally, biologically, um, all of the things that 
that might indicate that this is happening, that they are us coming back in time and, and not just visiting us now, but visiting us throughout the past. And I sort of touched on that with the Hopi a little bit because uh, there are many cases in Native American folklore and throughout Sub-Saharan Africa and, and many indigenous societies where they seemingly were experiencing the same things that we are now and have been throughout our recent past, but they they describe it in different ways. They use the only words they have available to them at that time to conceptualize it and to document it in all of these various forms. So I'm really excited about that project as well. His book is called Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. Dr. Michael P. Masters, my special guest. Michael, many blessings to you and I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. It's been so great talking to you. I appreciate you having me on. To find out more about our guest and all others, please visit our website at MysteriousRadio.com. And I want to give special thanks to our co-creator and executive producer, Kim Kyle, who brought this show to you today. And working hard behind the scenes, our team of four, I want to thank them as well. Follow us on social media and share the show with others that may like the subjects that we cover. I am your host, K-Town, and you're listening to Mysterious Radio. Thanks again for listening to Scary Time by Indie Drop-In Network. Check out all of Indie Drop-In shows at IndieDropIn.com. If you would like your show featured, reach out to us at Indie Drop-In on all social media or go to IndieDropIn.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.